Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Perringer. Let's, uh, let's turn to Daniel chapter 11 tonight. I want to study, continue our study in Daniel chapter 11. And um, I want to begin, though, by focusing in on a, uh, an attribute of God that might help us understand it's, hard, it's a hard attribute to understand, but without it, we can't really understand what else is going on. Because, you know, we say that God is eternal. And we need to keep that in mind in all things, because that, I think, sheds light upon a lot of what God does and who he is, and sheds a lot of light on his uh, other attributes, and it sheds a lot of light on the way that he interacts with the world. Although it's hard for us to grasp that whole thing, because he's eternal, guess what? We're not. So it's hard to grasp the full implications of him being eternal. Yeah, we might be able to get some of the philosophical things down. Okay, what does it mean that God is eternal? Well, it means that he has no beginning and no end. It means he has no dimension and no parts. It means that he's not restricted to time or space and, and, and things like that. I mean, yeah, we try and explore beyond that. I mean, our minds just kind of at least mine does. You know, I, I try and go beyond that, and then all of a sudden a fuse blows, and it's like, okay, well, nothing else is like that. But the thing is, you know, God is the only one who's like that. There is no one else like God. There is no one else who is eternal. So then we read a book like Daniel, and we see what's going on with this last uh, vision that he's given, starting in chapter 10. And, you know, we, we learn uh, toward the end of chapter 10 this angel is giving this vision and giving all this information to Daniel, and he says he's giving it out of what's called the Book of Truth. And this Book of Truth appears to lay out all of history. So here's God already has kind of history written, written out. And then we learn in Psalm 139 that God has a book for each of us, for our own lives. So then that starts, you know, if you're inquiry kind of like me, inquiring minds want to know, I guess. So what does that mean? Does that mean that God knows what's going to happen? Does it mean that God causes what's going to happen? Is it a combination of both? I mean, we know that God is not and cannot, you know, be the author of evil. I mean, he cannot go against his own character and standards, so he cannot be the cause of moral evil. Although, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that God won't put trials in our lives. Um, trials, we, we don't like them, but that doesn't automatically put them in, into the category of evil. I mean, we think they're evil, but, you know, in the real sense of evil, no, they're not. In fact, God can, can use those things. And that's, the, that, that, that's where eternity kind of comes in. I mean, God is sovereign, meaning he's in control. God is providential, meaning he's involved in everything. He's moving things according to his good pleasure. Not Again, not causing moral evil. He doesn't force people to do evil things or anything like that. And, and the, the fact that he's sovereign and he's providential and he's, he's eternal, that doesn't even necessarily take away from free will that man has. But 
However it, it means our little minds can't grasp it, God's eternal state, His sovereign control, His providence, He can take the evil actions of others that these people made in their own free will and then somehow cause that to further His plan. Even though He was not the cause or the author of that evil. I mean, that's hard to comprehend. Look at, look at Joseph. His brothers sold him into slavery. He had, a, he had a hard time while he was in Egypt. But then eventually, you know, he was made number two in Egypt. And his brothers, they, they kind of get scared. But anyway, what does Joseph tell his brothers? What you meant for evil, God turned into good to save people because of that famine. How? I, I, well, I don't know. That's the amazing thing about God. All we can do is chalk it up to the fact that God is eternal. God is able to do those things because he's God. And so sometimes, even though we don't understand it, we don't understand his being eternal, we don't understand his sovereignty all the way, we don't understand that he is providential, we can't grasp it all, that means we just have to trust who he is because we trust the attributes that we, that we can really grasp. Well, the Bible says God is love. God loves his people. I can grasp onto that. I may not understand the other stuff, but I can understand that he loves me. It says God is merciful. It says God is good. I, I can grasp onto those things. I don't understand maybe some of the, the other things, but I can understand that. And when I don't understand those other things, well, then I'm just going to hold on to these, these other things. The fact that he's good. And so, you know, we come to a point of Daniel chapter 11. The, the vision started in chapter 10, but here in, in chapter 11, here the, the angel is telling Daniel what's going to happen coming out from the book of truth, uh, God's plans within history, and, and he is, the angel is sharing specifically people and places and things that are going to happen to the, the Israelites. Now, it specifically deals with the time period with the Greco-Macedonian Empire. It has control, you know, the, the Greco-Macedonian Empire was split into four different areas. And two of those parts are kind of fighting one another, and Israel is stuck in the middle. You've got the Ptolemies in Egypt in the south, you've got the Seleucids in Syria in the north, and they're going back and forth, and Israel is stuck in the middle. And Israel's affected by what's happening. And yet, here it is in the book. This is coming straight out of the book, the book of truth, God's book. So God has decreed this is going to happen. And it's in Daniel's future, but it's in our past. And we can see the path that, uh, for Israel during that time period. And here's the thing, especially some of the things I'm going to talk about tonight. Yeah, some bad things are going to happen in Israel and to Israel. And not once did God lose control. Not once did he lose control. He, he already said, well, this is what's going to be happening. And so these prophecies, they come to us with such detail. In fact, they come to us with such detail that many people think that these things were written after the fact. I mean, there's, 
they don't think that God could give us that much detail. God, God is supernatural. He's eternal. He's sovereign. Yeah, he can give as much detail as, as he likes. And so tells us everything about these Ptolemies, the Seleucids, and everything. You know, they're going toe-to-toe politically, militarily, things like that. Israel stuck in the middle. And it, God is having it happen. God's allowing it to happen at minimum. He's not causing moral evil, but yet he's using it to form and shape things and move history to where it's going to eventually lead to the Messiah and, and things like that. And we don't get it. I, how can God be in control and these bad things happen, but yet he uses those bad things? Look, we don't get it. All we can do is say, amen, you're God, I'm not. Okay, I trust you. You do know you're not God, right? Just want to make sure that that's clear. That's why, you know, here's the thing. If we understood everything about God, he wouldn't be God. I mean, but he, but he, out of his love for us, has revealed himself so that we can have a relationship with him. He's revealed himself. And he reveals himself through this, that, yeah, He's in control. He's in control of history. And just as he moves things in the history, the lives of his people and of a nation, here he is, he's moving nations. Guess what? God can use the circumstances, both good and bad, in our own lives to do with whatever he wants to do. And we don't lose our free will, and he never loses his sovereignty. How's that work? I don't know. I'm not God, but I'm just going with, with Scripture here. And we have to be okay with that. Did you know that it is okay if you don't fully understand God and what in the world he's doing? We have to be okay with that. God, what in the world are you doing? And he doesn't tell us. And you know what? We have to be okay with that. I don't know. Oh, great. But all I know, God, is you're a good God. All I know is you are moving things toward a point in history. Christ is going to return. And either I'm going to die, Christ is going to return. Either way, you know what? I'm going to be with you. And everything's going to be all right. And we're going to be good with that. But here, he is giving detail, detail, blow for blow, what is going to be happening to Israel and to that area during this period? So, you know, we saw some of it last week, the back and forth, the back and forth. Well, here's some more back and forth. I'm going to start in verse 17 of Daniel chapter 11. And this is what, what the angel reveals. He, and it's talking about the Antiochus from before, he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give, them the, give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exact tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken 
neither in anger nor in battle. Whew, that's a whole lot of information there. It, Daniel's probably thinking, what in the world is going on here? There's so many players here. There's so many things at play. Well, we can look back in history and see exactly what he was talking about. Well, he's talking about Antiochus the Great. Where we pick up the story, Antiochus the Great defeated the Egyptians and gained control of Israel. He forced a treaty with the Ptolemies, and to seal the agreement, Antiochus gave his daughter Cleopatra, no, not that Cleopatra, just someone with the same name. So he gave his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy V as a wife, and Antiochus had hoped that through Cleopatra, he would kind of, you know, control Egypt, he kind of control what was going on, but the plan, as it says in the passage, the plan did not stand, it didn't succeed because, well, Cleopatra loved her husband and she would not help her dad in, in what he was trying to do, setting up a, you know, kind of a puppet government. So seeing that he wasn't able to manipulate his daughter, he decided, well, I'm, we're going to go and conquer some of the coastlands, take them from the Ptolemies. Well, he ran into a little bit of trouble when the up-and-coming Romans decided to come and, and prevent him from doing that. So the Romans forced the Seleucids to sign a treaty, and he actually lost territory instead of gaining territory. And he had to, he had to pay a whole lot of tribute money to Rome, and he had to give hostages over to the Romans. He had to give some high, important people in his kingdom over to the Romans. Well... Due to this devastating defeat, an angry mob of his own people killed him. And his son, Seleucus IV, Philopater, or Philopater, I don't know how, exactly how it's pronounced. Well, his son took over, but then he was soon killed by a tax collector who wanted the throne for himself. I'm telling you, I mean, it's like a soap opera in this thing. So we pick up the story in verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. So, Philopater's, or Philopater's son, Demetrius. Now, he should have had the throne. You know, so they, you know, get rid of that, that tax collector guy and whatever. So, Demetrius should have had the throne. But he was one of the hostages that were sent off to Rome. And so Philopater's brother, Antiochus IV, seized power through cunning and intrigue. This Antiochus, he was pretty, oh, arrogant, I guess would be the word. He referred to himself as Epiphanes, which means the manifest one, the illustrious one. But... Uh, to make fun of that name, they called him Epimenes, which means the madman. And that he was. Well, Egypt tried to attack Antiochus Epiphanes, thinking his kingdom was weak with all this infighting that was going on. 
But Antiochus actually defeated the Egyptians. And so now Antiochus, he was very, he was very Greek. He wanted to Hellenize the area, which means he wanted to introduce Greek language, Greek culture. He wanted to turn everything Greek. And that included Israel. And so he still controlled Israel. And, and he wanted to get heavily involved in the politics and the religion of Israel. So it says in, in our passage there that he deposed the Prince of the Covenant. He ousted the Jewish high priest whose name was Ananias III at the time. And what he did was he gave the position of high priest, priest to the one who would pay him the most. Whoever the highest bidder was, hey, you can become high priest. And he did other political maneuverings and things like that, but he kept a strong hand on Israel. And as the passage says, Antiochus took much of the wealth out of Israel and he redistrib redistributed it to his supporters throughout his empire. So what else did he do? Beginning in verse 25. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings... Their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the, at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. Well, okay, so in 170 B.C., the Ptolemies, the Egyptians, they attempt to recapture Israel, but they're defeated by Antiochus. And because of that rash move, Antiochus decided to invade Egypt, which he did. And he was able to take Ptolemy IV Philometer. You know, they couldn't have names just like Bob or George. Anyway, he took that, that emperor, that king, prisoner. And he, because he had followed some bad advice from members of the Egyptian court leading to being deposed. But then the powerful Egyptian nobles crowned his brother, Ptolemy VII, crowned him as the new king. And Antiochus, not liking that, you know, he captured Ptolemy VI, and so he teamed up with Ptolemy VI and thought that together they could depose Ptolemy VII. But it was a very shaky alliance, which seems to be the background of verse 27. Talk about, you know, fake truce and telling lies and, and things like that. So while Antiochus was off fighting this battle, trying to depose that, number seven, a false report went out throughout um, Israel. So a false report had gone out through Israel saying that Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes, was killed. Well, that stirred up an insurrection among the Jews. Antiochus is dead. Hey, let's get rid of the Syrians. Let's get rid of these Seleucids. Well, guess what? Antiochus was not dead. And on his way back to Syria, going through Israel, he came through and he quickly squelched that insurrection by killing 80,000 people and taking another 40,000 hostage. And so because of the insurrection of the Jews, he set his heart against the Holy Covenant, as it says there. And he decided he was going to do as much damage to Israel and really get them under his control. He started stealing things out of the temple and things like that. But that was just the beginning of the persecutions. 
beginning in verse 29 through verse 35 it says at the time appointed he shall return and come into the south but it shall not be this time as it was before for ships of Kittim, Cyprus shall come against him and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the covenant the holy covenant Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So after, a little bit of time after Antiochus returned to Syria, returned to his capital, he learned that Ptolemy number 6 decided to team up with Ptolemy number 7, and they decided to rule Egypt together. You know, instead, he kind of had left Ptolemy VI down there, hoping that Ptolemy VI and Ptolemy VII would be rivals, and they would kind of battle one another and, you know, try and weaken the government in constant battle and bickering. He was thinking that, okay, if they're constantly battling one another, they're weak, they won't bother me anymore. Well, they didn't. They decided to team up. And then they decided to negotiate an alliance with Rome. Well... Antiochus was not happy, to say the least, and so he set out for Egypt with his armies. However, just like last time, there would be outside interference. Roman forces came. They intercepted Antiochus just before he got to Alexandria in Egypt, and the ambassadors met with him, and they said, okay, here's the decree of the Roman Senate. You, you either leave or you battle Rome. Well, Antiochus thought about it for a minute, and then he, he said, give me time to think about that. And it's, it's sad, you know, how these stories go. But it's sad that this Roman ambassador drew a, a line in the ground around Antiochus and said, you're going to give me an answer before you leave that circle. Well, Antiochus knew he wasn't going to be able to defeat both Rome and Egypt, and so he turned around, but he was mad. He was frustrated, and so what did he do? He took his frustrations out on the Israelites. Um, he was already kind of perturbed at the Israelites because they refused to take on Greek culture like he wanted them to. And so he was going through Israel. He decided he's just going to mess them up. He stopped the burnt offering in the temple, and within the temple he actually set up the abomination of desolation, he set up a, an altar to the god Zeus in the temple of God. Now, pious Israelites were obviously none too happy about that, and so it began a revolt. The, uh, a group of, well, it's a, a priestly family, the Maccabees, they began a revolt against Antiochus. Um, unfortunately, 
many apostate Jews sided with Antiochus Epiphanes. And so Jews were forced to fight against other Jews. And so Jews were forced, really, they, they had to make a decision. Are you going to be faithful to God and maybe lose your life being faithful to God? Or are you going to save your own skin and compromise and side with Antiochus? Many chose Antiochus, but many remained faithful. And they fought with the Maccabees. Now, a lot of what happened during this period, they are not inspired scripture. I'm going to state that right now. They are not inspired scripture. You've heard of probably the books, 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees, 3rd, 4th, you know, things like that. You've probably heard those. Uh, They are part of the Apocrypha. Um, Catholics have the Apocrypha in their Bible for some reason. The Jews didn't even have them in their Bible, so why Catholics do, I have no idea. But anyway, they're there, but they do give a historical account of what was happening during that time, and they give an account of the faithfulness of so many, so many within the Maccabean family and so many others. Don't have time to read any of that tonight, but they, were, they, they remained faithful. They fought against Antiochus, and eventually... Antiochus would be uh, defeated, and the the temple would be rededicated. Um, And that I just had to go through very quickly. And that was all written in God's book of truth. It was written out before it happened. This this is going to happen. God's faithful were martyred. I mean, there were many who were martyred during that time. So here's the thing. God's own people were martyred. What happened after the church was born? What did Rome do? Many of God's people were martyred. And God did not lose control one second. You mean God allowed his people to be martyred? Yeah. For his purposes, he, knew, he, he knows the future. He knows what he's working toward. He knows the reasoning behind everything. He doesn't, lo- he doesn't lose control. If one of his people are martyred, what happens? They are welcomed into heaven, and they hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And they are rewarded. So here we are. We, do, we don't have the book of truth in front of us. So we really don't know what's going to happen. We, we don't even know what's going to happen an hour from now, much less years, decades, centuries from now. So we go into an unknown, crazy future, not knowing what's going to happen, and we have no control over it. But we know the one who has control over it, and we know that he is moving things toward a purpose. No, God's people are not spared heartache during that time. I mean, you, you see here, the Old Testament saints, they were not spared heartache, nor was the nation spared from judgment. So when God's people in our day and age experience the same things, why should we be surprised? Why should we think that we're the exception in history? Is there something special about us? 
yeah, Lord, I know, I know the first and second century you had saints die, but Lord, it's the 21st century. Come on, we're beyond that. We're special. No. God is doing his thing. And here's the thing. As it's testified here and elsewhere, God's saints remained faithful. They did not turn their back on God, but they decided to trust him even more. May we choose to do the same. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening and God bless.